Well, we have gone through now six sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. This is our seventh. Um, and we've talked about a lot of stuff. We've gone through quite a bit. Jesus has laid out what it means to be his disciple, what it means to be a subject in his kingdom, and he's given us a lot of stuff. But he knows our tendency, and our tendency is to not really look at ourselves. So I've, I just had us pray for ourselves and the people on either side of us, but Jesus knows that our tendency is to really just look at the person on either side of us. How many times in the last six weeks have any of you thought something like, man, I wish my brother was here when Nathan was preaching about the Beatitudes because he really thinks that Christianity is just a checklist of do's and don'ts and I wish he was here to hear about a poverty of spirit, posture of heart, right? Or when I, when I was teaching about anger over in the big service, how many of you ever thought, like, man, I wish my dad was here to hear about anger, because he's angry a lot. And I wish you would hear that anger is really no different than murder, and he needed to be here for this. Wish he went out of town this weekend. Or that guy or girl, everyone knows that he's just living the way he does just for the praise of men. All he cares about is just other people to notice him and recognize him. He doesn't really care about God getting glory, all he cares about is himself getting glory. Or maybe you parents, you're like, last week maybe you're, when I was teaching about treasuring Christ and hoping in Christ, you're not, you didn't once think about yourself, you just thought, man, I hope my son or daughter's listening this week, hope they're getting this. And some of that's good, right? Some of that is just good and thoughtful concern, especially you parents, like we, like Paul, would give our salvation for our own kids. Or you really do want your brother and sis or sister to have a more complete picture of the gospel, and they want, you want them to have a broken spirit, posture of heart. But our tendency is to not really have thoughtful concern or care of others, but to just make sermon applications for them. Or when we're reading the Bible by ourselves or reading a good book, we highlight something so that we can like show it to our mom or our sister and show them how wrong they've been, right? Instead of highlighting something and saying, God, made this be true of me. So the, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that it's our nature to assume that we've got it all together, and if people, other people could just get their act together, then the world would be a much better place, right? But this is pride, and Jesus knows it, and he's not going to let us get away with it. So he's given us a pretty heavy sermon so far, and he knows our tendency is to look to others, so what's he going to say? Where are we? Anybody? Where are we picking up? Matthew 7. We finished chapter 6 last week. So Jesus says, Judge not that you not be judged, or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but this is pretty clearly, I think pretty clearly, the most well-known verse in the Bible 
for my generation and down. So my, from anyone who's like 30 and younger, this is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. I think for your parents and my parents' generation, it was probably John 3.16, right? What, which is what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Everyone knew this in our culture in America. Certainly our grandparents' age, everyone knew it. Now, probably not. But you say, judge not, lest you be judged. I, I bet 95% of the people in your school hallways will know this verse. And they couldn't tell you at all where it comes from, that it comes from Matthew 7.1. But they know this verse. Why do we know this verse? Why is this so important to our generations? What do you think? Why do we love this verse so much as a culture? Tolerance, what do you mean by tolerance? Accepting everybody, regardless of what you believe, right? Okay, what else? Why is this for, yeah, Andrew? Right, okay, so he said we don't like to hear the truth about ourselves. You guys have any other thoughts? Right, so if, he said goodness or holiness is relative, so we'd rather there not be a standard of righteousness because then we can't be held accountable to anything, right? I think another reason why we love this verse so much is because we see so much hypocrisy around us, right? So we say, hey man, you can't judge me. Take a look at your own self. Go look in the mirror, buddy. Get your act together and then you can talk to me, right? We love saying that. But the problem with just taking one verse, just plucking it and making it the banner phrase of our entire generation, is we're taking it completely out of context. And the immediate context of this verse is the Sermon on the Mount, right? So what has come before this in chapters 5 and 6? Jesus sets a pretty high standard of righteousness, right? So there is a standard of righteousness to which we're held accountable. There is no moral relativity, right? Jesus is setting a very high standard, a higher standard than we, never, than we ever thought. And then following this, what we're going to talk about next week, is he offers some pretty serious warnings for what happens if we don't follow or obey that standard of righteousness. So, we are accountable to something. There is no moral relativity. And some of you, or if you explain that to some others might say, okay, oh, that's great, so there is a standard of righteousness, but that doesn't actually give you the right to confront me or judge me. That's okay, I may not be the best person, right? But how dare you judge me, man, right? Well, the problem with that is we're taking this not only out of the immediate context, but the, some greater context in the book of Matthew. What happens in chapter 18? You guys don't have to turn there, turn there, but let me just read this. You guys know what, what's in 18? You guys know where I'm going with this? Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So Jesus says, 
when someone is in sin, you actually do confront them. You first go to them by yourself. If they don't listen, then you grab a brother or sister and come with you and confront them. If they don't listen to you, then you take them to the church. So Jesus, it appears to me, is not saying when he says, judge not lest you be judged, he's not saying we never confront sin, which is what we interpret that as, right? This is what our culture interprets this verse is. Judge not lest you be judged means you do not have the right to confront me, right? But Jesus is not saying that. In fact, he does say, at the end of that, what I just read, then you will see clearly to actually take the speck out of someone's eye. So you actually do then confront. But what do we have to do first before we get there? We have to first deal with ourselves. Jesus tells us that we have to first look inwardly. So he's saying, do you, do you have a poverty of spirit, a broken posture of heart? Do you, are you, you concerned with a teleos? Remember this word? A completed, a perfect, a whole love of God. A teleos love of heart, soul, mind, body. You, are you concerned with this? Are you more concerned with God glory than self glory? Do you treasure Jesus? Find your hope in Him. You. And then we see clearly, we see that there is nothing in and of ourselves that's righteous. Remember, some of you guys are new. We're going to talk a little bit more about the cross chart for some of you guys that have joined us in a couple weeks, but just to refresh you, remember this cross chart that we talked about, that as we grow in our awareness of God's holiness, how he, we see that he's not just Santa Claus or something, but he's actually a good and great God, and we become more aware of our own sin, and we realize that we have nothing to offer, right? That we worship and appreciate Jesus and the cross more. And then this breeds in us a humble compassion rather than a judgmental pride. So judgmental pride says what? When, you, when I see Matt in gross sin, if I'm prideful and judgmental, I'll, I'll come to him and I'll say, Matt, dude, look at you. You are such a mess. Why don't you become more like me, all right? That's judgmental pride, and that's what our tendency is, to be that. But when we see our God's holiness and our sin and trust and worship Jesus and the cross, then we have humble compassion. What does humble compassion look like? When I see Matt in gross sin, I come to him and I say, Matt, look at us, man. We're such a mess. Let's look to Jesus together, because we have... We're broken and just a wreck. See, I see him like, like me, a sinner, a broken sinner, and it breeds humble compassion rather than judgmental pride. And I love and care for Matt so much that I want him to trust in Jesus, to find his hope and his treasure in Jesus. That's why I confront him. Not because I think that I'm somehow better and he needs to become more like me, but because I see him exactly like I see myself, broken, sinful. 
deserving of God's wrath. But I want him to find his hope and treasure in Jesus. That's why I go to Matt. And I do confront him. I do come to him to take the speck out because I want him to find his hope and treasure in Jesus. So, we want, Jesus says that who are we? We are pridefully judgmental people who selectively focus. Remember this Pharisee and the tax collector we talked about the first time I was here? How the Pharisee says, he just selectively focuses on the sins of others. He says, thank God I'm not an adulterer or certainly a tax collector while ignoring his own sinful and rotting heart that's fueled by pride and some sort of spiritual checklist. This is us, right? We selectively focus on the sins of others while ignoring ourselves. Jesus says that we are to become humbly compassionate people. I've heard a pastor in Dallas preach that we often act as if God is really, really displeased with sins of others, but somehow he's just kind of okay with our own sin. You guys kind of agree with that? Like, God doesn't really care that we're lazy and completely self-centered. It's just the kids at school that do drugs that he hates, right? Or God doesn't really care. He just kind of turns his head on my sexual impurity. He's really just displeased with the homosexual, right? We're just kind of picking sins and acting like God is cool with the stuff that we do. God's somehow just kind of cool with you being completely proud. That he's just somehow cool with the little gods that you worship and the fueling of your own kingdom. He's, he's cool with that, right? It's just like the really bad guys, like the murderer or the rapist that, he, that really makes him angry. Right? Do we do this? I do this. Just like the Pharisee, selectively focusing on the sins of others while completely ignoring our rotting hearts. Jesus is calling us to first, first, the first thing you do when you hear a sermon from me or read your Bible or read a book is first to look inwardly, to see how your heart is broken, is sinful, is rotting, and do some real work with that. Okay? And then we have humble compassion and we can better and effectively take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Okay. Now, uh, let's keep going. Verse 6. So then Jesus, after giving us a pretty good and clear little exposition here, then he says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That's easy. Will somebody explain that, please? This is very clear. What is Jesus saying here? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good interpretation there, Caleb. Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I was expecting you to have some mainly, mostly silence, because no one understood this verse, because it's a hard one to understand. 
And there are lots of interpretation, but I think what Caleb said is actually pretty good. So just, so in, in Israel, in these times, dogs were completely unholy. They are the, when, if, you, if you called someone a dog, that was like the highest of insults. And so why would you give something that is holy to that which is unholy? Or why would you, ladies, if you have a pearl necklace of great, great value, it would be silly to go out to the backyard or to the farm and put it around a pig's neck who's just going to roll around in the slop, right? Why would you do that? That's what Jesus is saying. And I think if we, if we put this in context with the first five verses that we just read and we're talking about humble compassion, about confronting or correcting a brother and sister, if they don't respond well, if they respond in judgmental pride, kind of like our culture does, hey man, how dare you judge me? Jesus is saying we don't have to rise and fall on their response. We don't have to think of a more effective way to then confront them. He's saying humbly and compassionately confront, and if they respond in hate or just completely ignore you, I think he's saying kind of move on, right? Don't put your pearls on the pig. And that's, that's not to say that we never, like we don't be friends with them anymore or don't continue to love them, pray for them, or even confront them later on. But I think he's just saying we don't have to stay up at night losing sleep over whether they're going to repent or not because this is a work of God if they're going to repent, right? Okay, so what, which, what should we expect now? After that, don't look. Don't look at verse... Seven here. Maybe you already have. Hey, I said don't look. What, what do you think should come next here? Jesus has just given us a big exposition through two chapters on what it means to be a disciple of his. Ah, are you looking? Uh, then he's told us to look inwardly, right? Do some real heart work on yourself. What would you expect him to say next? What should he say? What do you guys think? Any thoughts? If you were giving this sermon, if you are outlining your next point, what would your next point be? I would say something like, I've given you this impossible standard, look inwardly, and then just... Give it the old college try, right? Just give it a go, right? When the going gets tough, the tough gets going. Give it your best shot. Or the Jimmy V speech, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up, right? Something like that. That's what I would expect Jesus to say. But what does he say next? This is bizarre. Let's read it. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, Jesus says when we seek it, we will find it. But what is it? You guys have any thoughts? To seek and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. But find what? What do you guys think? Yeah. Okay. Anybody else have any thoughts? Okay. Righteousness. Well, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I think that the book of James is a giant exposition or a giant further teaching on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if this is true, James says, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I hope you heard the words that I put emphasis on. But before we get there, in verse 4 he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you guys remember any other sermon that I've preached on this word perfect, because it's the exact same word that James uses. Remember this Greek word? Teleos, right? Remember in 548, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be, he's not saying be morally perfect, but be teleos, be complete, be whole, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. James says the exact same thing. He says, be teleos and complete, and then a great way of describing it is lacking in nothing. But if you are not teleos, if you are lacking something, what should you do? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who generously, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So what should we ask for? What should we ask for? Wisdom. What? What? What's wisdom? It's like street smarts. Or you know a lot of stuff. Like you could just fly through who wants to be a millionaire. Or, as I just happened to see, Jeff Foxworthy has a new show called the American Bible Challenge. <laughs> I don't know. So does this mean if you're wise, you could just like, Kill it on the American Bible Challenge. What is wisdom? Just a bunch of stuff that you know? Anybody have any? How would you define wisdom? Discernment with the knowledge you have? Good. I think both of those are good. I would describe it as the practical application of biblical knowledge. Okay? So when Solomon talks about someone who is wise, it's someone who knows the stuff, but then does it. And consequently, who is a fool in Sol when Solomon is talking in the Proverbs? A fool isn't someone who doesn't know what to do. It's the, the fool is someone who knows what to do and then doesn't do it. Okay? So when we have wisdom, we will apply all that we have just heard in chapters 5 and 6. 
in this looking inwardly thing, we will say that, God, we are not teleos. We are not whole, perfect. We don't treasure you and you alone. We don't find our hope in you. So God, give me wisdom that I might begin to apply that to live in such a way that does treasure you, that hopes in you. And then God will give that to us. God will give us wisdom. And then did you notice the very last thing that I said in verse 7 of chapter 1 in James, where James says he is a double-minded man. The guy who asks without faith is like a double-minded man. That is kind of the opposite of teleos. He has like two motives. He doesn't love God with all of his heart and his soul and his mind, but he's double-minded. He's living for different things, right? So, James and Jesus says that God will give it to us, but he'll give us wisdom. So, we use, we use this verse a lot. A lot of people in our culture and a lot of pastors and pulpits all across America will use this verse to just say, Whatever you want, just ask God in faith and he'll give it to you. And if he hasn't given it to you yet, it's because you don't have enough faith. So just have more faith and he'll give it to you. What's the problem with that? <laughs> yeah? Good? I think the, the God that's portrayed in that theology is kind of like the genie in Aladdin, right? Where we just rub the lamp... He comes out, and we just ask him for whatever we want, right? And he'll give us, I don't know what Aladdin wishes for. He makes us a prince, Prince Ali, yeah? He gives us 75 golden camels. So elegant, so elegant, right? Uh, right? Uh, so we just, ask for, we just ask for whatever we want. We want a Ferrari? Ask God. He'll give it to you. If he hasn't given it to you yet, just have, better, have more faith. We want a boyfriend? Ask God. He'll give it to you. If you want a better boyfriend? Ask God. He'll give it to you. Right? If you want to get into Princeton or, I don't know, even, I don't know. If you want to get, what you name the school, just ask God and he'll give it to you. Right? But, remember what we said last week? and even last night in Ratatouille, God doesn't necessarily care for your happiness. He cares for your holiness. Because God knows what we need. He wants us to be satisfied not in a Ferrari or a boyfriend, a better boyfriend, or Princeton. He doesn't want us to be satisfied in those things. He wants us to be satisfied in Him. Right? And if He just gives us a bunch of stuff, then He knows that our tendency will just be to be satisfied in the stuff, not the giver of the stuff. So, God is not a genie. That's why God gives us wisdom. He gives us the practical application of biblical knowledge because he knows that with that, we'll be satisfied in him. Psalm 37, 4, David says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is another verse that a lot of people use to just say, just read your Bible and pray and go to church. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you whatever you want. But I think when we delight ourselves, not just doing stuff, but our delight, our hope, our treasure is in God, is in Jesus, then our desires will become his desires. So we see that the, the, thing that God, the things that God desires most for ourselves, our families, 
our world, those are the things that we begin to desire. Not a Ferrari, a boyfriend, or Princeton, right? Okay. Then Jesus says in verse 12, we're ending with this verse. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You guys remember any other verse in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said the law and the prophets, this phrase, the law and the prophets? You guys remember? I'll give you a hint. It was in the sermon that I preached across the hall in the big service. Anybody see it? So that would have been chapter 5. I'll give you another hint. It's the first verse of that sermon that I preached, which would have been verse 17. So Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So I think, along with many other commentaries, that Jesus is using these two law and the prophets phrases to make a big sandwich. The law and the prophets, both of those in 517 and in 712, are the pieces of bread around the, his main teaching, his main sermon. So next week, we're going to see Jesus' formal teaching on what a disciple is, who he is. It's finished. Now he's just saying, now what are you going to do about the teaching that I just gave you? So Jesus is saying that this is the bulk of the teaching, and all of the Old Testament, all of God's redemptive history through Israel and his people is leading up and is fulfilled in me. And if we can sum up all of it, it is this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Well, that seems pretty simplistic, right? And what about the temple and like the sacrificial system and, I don't know, David and Goliath? And King Solomon and Moses, all that. surely, Jesus, you're being a little too simplistic by saying all of that can just be summed up in the golden rule. Well, I think it can be summed up in that for a few different reasons. First of all, have you ever noticed that this is not the negative form of this command? Do you know what I mean by that? So... There are a lot of other religions, even at the time of Jesus, that used the negative form of this rule that says, do not, negative, do not do anything to anyone that you would not want him to do to you. Do you guys see the little subtle difference? So Jesus could be then saying, so if you do not, the negative, if you do not enjoy being robbed, then don't rob others. Or if you don't like someone to curse you, then don't curse others. Or if you don't like being hated, then you should not hate others. Or if you do not really typically enjoy being clubbed over the head with a baseball bat, then by all means, then you should not club others over the head with a baseball bat. Right? So that would be the negative form of the golden rule. But Jesus doesn't give us the negative form. He gives us the positive form. He says, whatever you wish others do to you, then you also do to them. What's the difference? 
Jesus says, if you enjoy, if you love others loving you, then love. Love others. If you like to receive things from other people, then give. If you like people to serve you, then serve others. If you like being appreciated by others, then appreciate, love others. Do you see the difference? If Jesus had given us the negative form, we could just withdraw completely from society, just live in our rooms by ourselves, and we would never hate anyone or club anyone over the head or steal from them, but it doesn't mean we're loving them, right? Right? Jesus is saying we have to be proactive, the positive form. We have to be proactive in our faith. We have to seek out ways to serve, to appreciate, to love others. I think this is why Jesus is saying the entire law and prophets can be summed up in you seeking to serve others. Jesus Elsewhere, in John, the book of John, chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if you don't love others, the positive, proactive form of the golden rule, then this should be a major siren going off in your head. A major red light flashing saying, I may not be a disciple of Jesus. I may not be a follower, a lover, a treasurer of Jesus. I may not be a Christian. Do you guys feel the weight, the gravity of this? Jesus says, by this you will know if you are my disciple, if you love others. Jesus says, then he, he also says, just as I loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? I made reference to this last week from Philippians 2, but Paul writes, let's turn there, let's turn there together. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. I think Paul is telling us how we are to love others. Remember, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, Paul says, so this is how you are to love. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus loved you so much that he left heaven with God, perfect communion with his Father, to become a man, remember we talked about last week, a man who could get sick, who could get tired, who could be beaten and tortured and killed for you. And it's when we 
understand the depth of that great love shown to us, then we will say, yes, of course. I will love others. I will serve my parents. Find ways to serve my brothers and sisters. Find ways to not look only to my own interests, but also to the interests of others. Ways to count others more significantly than myself. This is a way, these are ways to proactively love others rather than just becoming so self-centered and self-isolated and self-dependent, right? We're dependent on the love and grace of God that then pushes us outward to love others. This is the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament is pointing to a God who will sacrificially love his people so that they might sacrificially love others. And this is what we're called to do. We're called to sacrificially love others because of the great God who has sacrificed himself for us. I pray that right now you'd be thinking about yourself Am I loving others? Do I believe in this God who has sacrificed, for him, sacrificed himself for me? Rather than thinking about your mom or your dad or your brother or sister or that kid in your class that you wish would just come to church, right? Do some serious heart work here, some serious business on your own heart and soul so that you might become humbly compassionate to love others. Okay?